Hi, I'm Val Hart in San Antonio, Texas, founder of Val Hart and Friends at ValHart.com. Welcome to The Real Dr. Doolittle Show, the show for animals and the people who love them. I've been called a real-life Dr. Doolittle many times in my career as an expert animal communicator, behaviorist, pet psychic, and master healer. My mission and passion is to improve the lives of animals the world over by helping humans learn how to speak their language, how to understand their viewpoints, and heal. After all, our love of animals helps us be better humans, and the more balanced and healthy we are, the more balanced and healthy they can be, too. Be sure and look for my CDs on iTunes, and to find out more about my work and to receive your free Quick Start Animal Talk course, just go to my website at valhart.com. While you're there for a limited time, you can also apply for a complimentary Happy Animal Assessment Session. And if you want to learn how to be your own Dr. Doolittle, check out the world's first complete animal communication made easy system available now on my website at valhart.com. Thank you and enjoy the show. Real Dr. Doolittle, and today I'm talking with Karen Becker. She graduated from the University of Wisconsin Stevens Point, majoring in wildlife and international resource management. In 1989, she received her degree in veterinary medicine from the Iowa State School of um, Vet Medicine in 97, and she completed an exotic animal internship in California. She's also certified in veterinary acupuncture and homeopathy. Dr. Becker owns Natural Pet Animal Hospital, Feathers Bird Clinic, and Thera Paw Rehabilitation and Pain Management Clinic in Illinois. This is her 25th year as a federally licensed wildlife rehabilitator, caring for over 200 wild animals a year through her nonprofit Covenant Wildlife Rehabilitation Center. Dr. Karen Becker often lectures about species-appropriate nutrition, and she's co-authored the Whole Dog Journal's Best Homemade Diet Book of All Time Award, Real Food for Healthy Pets. She's appeared on the hit show Animal Planet. She's deeply honored to be named one of Chicago's top ten vets, according to the Chicago Magazine. Dr. Becker is also the veterinary consultant for Mercola Healthy Pets, where half a million passionate animal lovers receive her free wellness newsletter three times a week. Welcome to the show, Dr. Karen. Thank you, Val. It's really a, a great honor to be here. I'm delighted. I, I know, you know, one of the things that you told me when we were setting up this interview that you, you know, felt so passionate about sharing with people is that you, you want to empower pet owners to take charge of their pet's health. Yep. So you want to talk about that for a moment? Well, what I absolutely. What I do in my practice, I'm a full-time practicing veterinarian, and what I have seen, uh, certainly with animals coming in, by the time people consider integrative care, oftentimes um, they're, I don't want to say they're desperate, but they're, they have been to one or two or three or four traditional veterinarians, and they're just mm-hmm. interested in getting more of a holistic or integrative picture. And by the time I see those animals, they really need um, – they need to be reworked. Their entire protocol and um, and life template really needs to be reworked from the ground up. And so that really involves owners, pet owners, pet caregivers, guardians to be able to become knowledgeable about enough what's going on inside their pet's body that they can really help to not only guide uh, what they believe is in their pet's best, in their pet's best interest, but really mm-hmm. be able to participate and coordinate uh, in every aspect their pet's well-being so that they really know that they're making the best decisions for the animals in their care. Mm. Yeah. 
I know you talk a lot about the three pillars of health, and you say that that unlocks our pet's healing potential. So can you, uh, let's talk about that for a moment. I want to know what the three pillars are. What do you see those as? Sure. Well, let me tell you first why I um, came up with the three pillars of health. I found you probably have you, you've seen some of my videos, and I get very excited, and I talk very quickly. I can, <laughs> I can, I can speak very, very quickly. <laughs> I can grab four hours of information into an hour-long veterinary appointment. So I, <laughs> so I think that people, people need to come see me for half a day most of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, what I found is that I can succinctly help identify overall lifestyle wellness obstacles by evaluating three major areas of a pet's life. And this is true whether a pet visits me for cancer or allergies or quote-unquote incurable arthritis or Mm. organ degeneration. I have found that we have to address all three areas of well-being if we're really interested in holistic uh, vitality improvement. So what I found myself doing was repeating myself over and over and over in the exam room, and finally I just thought, you know what? These are concrete principles that apply to all of life, regardless of what species they are. So what I did is I have identified three major areas. The first area is species-appropriate nutrition, which means you need to nourish the animal the way it was designed to be nourished, and that can be different for a bunny. It is different for a bunny versus a cow versus a horse or dog or Mm -hmm. cat. All of those animals require different feeding habits. Mm -hmm. So the second pillar of health is a balanced, resilient immune system. We don't want an underactive immune system that leads to cancer, and we don't want an overactive immune system that leads to autoimmune disease. The goal is to maintain immunologic balance. Mm -hmm. The third pillar of health is a strong, healthy frame or organ system. So you want good joints, good eyesight, excellent dentition, strong teeth, good kidney and heart function. So Mm -hmm. what I found is that pets coming to visit me were having issues in one if not all three of those areas. So yeah. clearly pets that have cancer, they have immune system issues. And so, or pets that have kidney disease, and we're no better off fixing the kidneys if indeed the animal slips a disc and is paralyzed. And we're no better off fixing an allergic condition if we end up with an animal that is dealing with uh, incurable tumors. So the goal is to address all three of the pillars at the same time. Got it. That's comprehensive. It is. Yeah. I, what I like also about that is that's not what the u- typical vet will do uh, when we go, you know, take our animal in to see the vet. We've got a presenting complaint or problem, right? Um, and they, they typically, t- in my experience, they want to treat it symptomatically. Oh, let's give it a, you know, cortisone shot <laughs> right. or a steroid or something like that. And I always think, oh, my God, you know, we're just missing so much. Yeah. So I love that you've identified uh, the concrete principles that are appropriate, not just for our animals, but for us too. <laughs> yeah, and you know it's interesting so, because what mm-hmm. what you'll find is that those traditional veterinarians, and it's not that that's um, they're doing that on purpose. Unfortunately, they have been trained as I was trained through vet school. I was not trained as a wellness veterinarian. Mm-hmm. I was trained to treat symptoms that would ex- be expressive of an underlying disease process, but I wasn't even necessarily taught how to address those disease processes. So really, you can look at medicine one of two ways. You can look at medicine reactively, which is I'm going to wait till my pet has a symptom, and then mm-hmm. I will treat the symptom. Or you can treat a problem, uh, or even the goal would be to, before a problem exists, consider looking at your pet proactively, which means every physical body has weak links. 
some uh, animals and some breeds have a predisposition, let's say, to hip dysplasia. Mm -hmm. Some animals have predispositions to heart problems or eye problems. If you know that your dog or cat has a genetic predisposition, it, long before that DNA takes hold to be able to express those genetics that could lead to a degenerative condition midlife, you can do some amazing things early on to ever prevent the opportunity for that DNA to be expressed, which is really awesome. And really that's the difference between a proactive veterinarian and a mm -hmm. reactive veterinarian. Big difference, okay. really big difference. Yes. That's really good. I yeah. like that. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because proactive veterinarians by nature, not only are we looking at what symptoms, certainly a symptom could bring you to the veterinarian, but then the question is why. Why does that happen? So is there a genetic issue? Was there a prior illness or disease state? Was there a stressor or was there an accident that could have brought this about? But really piecing together the pet's whole picture in terms of background, genetics, disease, where the animal came from, the previous experiences it had that uh, played into a stress response or an emotional struggle that the animal went through all really play into disease potential. Mm. Yeah, I see that. It makes a lot of sense to me. So so that's the difference um, between a reactive or a proactive integrative wellness veterinarian. It's true. Yeah. So um and, and yeah, I'm thinking, of course, oh, where do I find such a such a creature? Mm -hmm. um, are there others like you anywhere in the world? There are. There <laughs> do are we all have to travel to there, Chicago? There, there, are, there are. However, we are few and far between, mm. and um, there are more and more of us um, coming. I, I funny, I jokingly say we come from the dark side uh, to the light side. Uh, we, <laughs> um, there are some veterinarians that are in the process right now of evolving out of the dark side. And really what happens is I was um, I was raised in a really proactive home. So I was raised ah. with a family that ate organically, that exercised, that juiced every day. We just, healthy living was just a part of how I grew up. Mm, so I love was, that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it was natural yeah. for me just to kind of follow my roots and do what felt intuitively correct in terms of practicing medicine. A lot of veterinarians get pretty frustrated that in their traditional Western toolbox, mm -hmm. really all they have is drugs, you know, antibiotics and steroids in terms of uh, – options to help animals heal and really there's not a whole lot of healing that can even take place so helping yeah. to unlock the body's healing potential is another big factor of integrative veterinary medicine integrative vets recognize that there's no one way for the body to heal so in my toolbox uh, really the art of medicine is matching up with your patient what's going to unlock the healing potential and the good news is none of us are cookie cutter the bad news is is that unless you have enough tools in your toolbox you could end up being pretty frustrated because your veterinarian continues to offer something that is not fixing the problem. Yeah. So integrative vets will, of course, start with the least non-toxic options first. So that's homeopathy, acupuncture, herbs, nutraceuticals, Western herbs, Eastern herbs, Ayurvedic herbs, all these great different ways that we can help the body heal. Yeah. But the, the magic of recovery is really contained inside the body. So uh, really it's important that integrative veterinarians, that's why people end up seeking them out, is traditional veterinarians end up evolving into integrative veterinarians because they get really darn frustrated that they just don't have all the answers to people's questions. And so some, some veterinarians go down that path of wanting to heal more than they are actually healing. Yeah. So it is hard to find. There is a, a website, the AHVMA. The website is www.ahvma.org. That stands for the American Holistic Veterinary Medical Association. Okay. 
that's probably the first place that you could start. And then, of course, whenever you go on referral uh, without actually meeting the doctor, you would want to interview the doctor yourself and make sure you feel comfortable that you have philosophical viewpoints that are similar, that you line up with them in terms of their viewpoints, ideas, thoughts, recommendations. But th that's a pretty good place to start. That's great. So the place to start would be ahvma.org. Got it. Yep. All right. You got Excellent. it. Excellent. Excellent. Okay, good. So I know, Karen, in, in your practice, you focus extensively on nutrition. Um, so how does nutrition connect with all three areas, uh, uh, three pillars? Well, nutrition is, of course, the foundation for health. And we can't disregard nutrition whenever a disease process comes about. And we certainly have to include nutrition when it comes to ever speaking about vitality or resiliency against disease. Food has the power to heal and food mm. has the power to harm. And so we have to address nutrition, whether you're coming in with a musculoskeletal issue, nutrition is critical because there are pro-inflammatory foods. There are foods that create inflammation and then there are foods that resolve inflammation. Mm. If you're coming in with cancer, we know that there are foods that nourish and feed a cancerous process and there are foods that are actually very, very good at quieting down cancerous processes. Mm. We know wow. if you're dealing with animals that have an allergic response, we know that there are all sorts of allergenic substances that pets can be consuming that obviously if you have a pet with allergies, you would need to avoid. So it plays in, food plays into every aspect of an animal's disease process and it plays mm -hmm. into every aspect of the healing process in a pet. So Unfortunately, cool. you probably you probably are aware of this. For whatever reason, and actually I have some ideas as to why this came about, about 100 years ago, the first can of dog food entered the market. And I think probably Dr. Hill from Hill Science Diet did exactly what Betty Crocker did. Betty probably got <laughs> sick and tired of baking homemade cakes and was like, you know what, this this blows. I'm going to put all the ingredients in a box and make it very convenient. And I don't know about you, Val, but I have never made a homemade cake ever. <laughs> I like Betty a lot. Um, and when I, when I, you'll like this. When I took home ec in school, I specialized in Jello. Oh, see, the, there you go. You and I, you and I could have been death meat. That's excellent. <laughs> So yeah, knowing that, you know, we only I only bake cakes maybe once or twice a year. I appreciate Betty and her desire to make it very easy on me. Mm -hmm. uh, that is not a balanced food. It's nothing that uh, I would ever count on in terms of building up my immune system. It's something that I would do um, to celebrate the body's resilient and strong, and I'm fine eating cake several times a year, not a problem. Mm -hmm. Dr. Hill did the same thing with dog food. He said, you know, dogs are scavengers. They're outside. They um, we sometimes now as pet owners 100 years later, we tend to forget that dogs catch and kill their own food if you let them outside. Even to this day, sometimes if, you, if your dog gets off lead, they will chase after a bunny and kill it. Or if they find a nest of baby's bunnies, they'll eat them like Tootsie Rolls. And we're appalled and it's gross and disgusting, <laughs> but they also lick their butts. I'd like to remind everyone that we, are, we invite scavenging carnivores into our beds, forgetting that they scavenge. So that being said, sometimes people are like, I don't yes. really like have to put that out there like that, but that's the truth. And this so the truth. it is the truth, and we mm -hmm. love them for it. But yes. and you know, their their immune systems really are resilient and strong because they can handle that overwhelming amount of. You know, if you and I ate poo, we would die. Yes. Dogs, can, dogs can eat poo, and they do just fine because they're all equipped to handle that. Well, I be really believe Dr. Hill said, you know, I think that this is really a pain that. Uh, we're going to either throw them our leftover scraps 100 years ago as farmers or our dogs are going to continue to scavenge and eat bunnies around the farms. You know, I'm just going to create some quote-unquote dog food, much like Gerber created baby food. 
Um, and I, I think it's fine to feed Gerber baby food, but if Gerber ever were to say to you, you know, you should never feed your kid anything, anything other than Gerber baby food. If you feed anything other than Gerber baby food, it could be a risk to your child's health. You should never switch brands. This is the only brand you should trust. We've been feeding babies for 100 years. You should never feed anything else. All of us would think that that's an insane food recommendation. Pretty, pretty, pretty nutty, yes. Yeah. Oddly, in the last 100 years, for whatever reason, pet owners have actually succumbed to this asinine viewpoint and listened to Dr. Hill that said, you, you know, Hill, Hill Science Diet, you can do it prenup. These are foods that, that you should only feed your pet. You should never switch the food. It's a food for a lifetime. You should feed your pet the same food every day, month after month, year after year, from birth till death. And everything they need is in this little brown crunchy nugget. You should never switch it. Keep buying the same food. Bad things could happen if you tried to feed them anything else besides quote-unquote dog food. You should just follow our recommendations as such. And for some odd reason, I find it interesting, pet owners didn't question it. They embraced it. They now believe, if you stand in the mall and say to people, hey, what, do you, what should you feed your dog or cat? 99% of pet owners will say, duh, cat food. Mm-hmm. Um, and we never really traced it back to, well, what is cat food or what is in cat food so I've become pretty passionate in my practice about helping people at least recognize what they're putting in their pet's mouth I believe if you own a dog or cat you owe it to them to know in your heart of hearts exactly what you're putting in their mouth and if you are not passionate about nutrition you may be totally fine feeding rendered inorganic grains, byproducts of the human food industry, not approved USDA rendered meat. You may be fine with chemicals, preservatives, emulsifiers, but if you're not, and if you believe by trusting your vet and or uh, a dog food company that you're not feeding those things, I am sad to say that the majority of times you are and you just aren't aware of it. So I'm pretty passionate about people really educating themselves as to what exactly they're putting in their pet's mouth. Is that true also for what we would consider the better quality kinds of commercial foods? Yes, it is, and sadly, um, it's 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 a letdown, um, especially, yeah. I guess, what I have found being a veterinarian is people come in and they say, but my vet said to feed it. I know, so, yes. And it's hard because then all of a sudden the vet that you've loved that maybe your parents have gone to for 20 years and you've been going to for 10 years, all of a sudden you are, oh, you almost feel like you're challenging their – their knowledge base. And what I'll tell you is that many, many vet schools in the United States, the nutritional courses are still optional, which means you can graduate with a veterinary degree never taking a day of nutrition. The courses that are taught in veterinary schools, the majority of nutrition courses, are taught by um, the, the dog food companies themselves, which means they are taught by Hill Science Diet food reps that are that come into the class and for a couple of hours they talk about what foods are nutritionally correct for cats and kidney failure. You would feed Katie or what prescription diets you should be feeding for a dog and liver failure. And after your hour-long course, you're given this laminated chart that you can then use in your practice to be able to quickly and easily match up a food with a medical condition. The downside is that... I liken this to pharmaceutical reps teaching the pharmacology classes in med school. That's not only a conflict of interest, that would be totally unethical. And yet in veterinary medicine, our nutrition classes are taught by big food manufacturers. And I do think that it's not necessarily in veterinary students' best interest because I do not believe we're getting really balanced, fair, non-biased information. Well, how could we? 
Yeah, how exactly. could we? Yeah, and it's so it's not possible. It yeah. isn't possible, and it becomes pretty yeah. difficult then when veterinarians say, you know, I've been feeding this food for 10 years and you, your pets are fine. I guess what I would say is what's the definition of fine? So Thank for you. me, surviving is not good enough. I do not want my pets to survive. I want them to thrive. And what I have found is that the average veterinarian saying your pet will be fine feeding the foods that I'm selling, mm-hmm. you have to remember that the average dog and cat could visit the veterinarian up to eight times a year. That means Oof. eight visits that are not fine. That means your pet's coming in not for annual wellness exams, but for, in essence, sickness exams. That could be a minor mm-hmm. ear infection, a UTI, mm-hmm. a skin infection, a little bit of diarrhea. Eight Visits a year does not equate to health to me. That equates to a pet getting by. And so feeding a food that just allows the average amount of health to occur, you're going to have an average immune system, and that means you'll probably be at your veterinarian a whole lot more frequently than, in my opinion, you should be. If you believe that a pet should be thriving, thriving means above the level of disease, which ultimately means that by unlocking your pet's healing potential, they will not, not only not become ill, but their bodies are in a state of resiliency to the point that they don't have symptoms. Their bodies are self-sustaining. And then you would visit me for a a true wellness exam, uh, and we would identify any potential weak links uh, in the pet's uh, immune system that would need to be fortified. But bottom line, the pets aren't coming in sick, they're coming in well, and then the goal is to maintain them well. Really, the only thing you're doing for your pet on a day-to-day basis is nourishing them at home. So how you nourish them is really of key importance if you're interested in taking your pet from a survival-based mentality or uh, getting by to a thriving-based mentality. And it really revolves, in my opinion, around a day-to-day nourishment and picking those foods wisely. Mm. Oh, that was brilliantly said. I love that. I'm glad we're recording. (laughs) 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 That was was excellent. Ah, Okay, so... All right, so let's talk. Let's get into it. So, what is a species-appropriate diet? So, I want my animal to thrive, and I would hope that anyone listening to this show um, is also wanting their animal to thrive. And so, we get that we need to feed them the right food. Yep. There's a lot of controversy out there. What is the right food? We don't mm-hmm. know. Uh, yep. We're told this. We're told that. No grain. Grain. Yep. Food, fruit, blah, 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 who knows? Uh, yep. So what is a species-appropriate diet? Well, so excellent question. And really what I would tell everyone to do is go back to the roots of nature. Go back to before there were companies vying for your dollars, before there were multimillion-dollar advertising campaigns, before you were bombarded with information that was designed to sell a product. Go back to the roots of what your dog or cat was designed to consume before marketing hit 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 all of us in the last hundred years. Okay. So, what I have done, um, keep in mind that part of the reason that I'm pretty passionate is that I have taken enough comparative anatomy classes. Mm-hmm. Now, it, comparative anatomy is not required in veterinary medicine, but I took it as part of my undergrad degree, and really, it hit me pretty hard during my comparative anatomy courses that veterinarians need to be taught this in vet school and they're not getting this information. So in essence, in comparative anatomy, part of what you're learning is that um, the body is designed and equipped to process foods that they were evolutionarily designed to consume. So for instance, earthworms eat dirt, and I don't think anyone's going to argue that. That's their biologically appropriate food. Cows and other ruminating or grass-eating ruminants eat 
dried grasses in their gastrointestinal tract. It, it, to this day, it still totally impresses me that you can grow a 1,200-pound animal on dried-up grass. I just find that awesome. That, <laughs> that I mean, isn't that cool? That's a huge animal that eats dried-up grass. I just, and nature is amazing, but I tell you, they are not only they, do they have you know four stomachs to be able to appropriately ferment those dried those dried grasses that are able to create an energy source enough to nourish a 1,200 pound animal. That's awesome That's because amazing. it is so cool. But cows are designed to be able to consume that. A carnivorous animal is designed to eat meat, so you can't feed. A carnivorous animal dirt, and you can't feed a cow a meat-based protein. I mean, you, if you try to crisscross those uh, food, th- those the origins of what they were designed to consume, you end up with a lot of weirdness that happens. And I'll talk about more about that in a minute. But what you have to recognize is that animals are equipped biologically with the correct digestive processes to consume the foods that they were naturally designed to consume. Mm-hmm. So, to me, it goes back to then. Well, okay, so what really is a dog? So the domestic dog, its Latin name, genus, and species is called Canis lupus. It's a domesticated form of the gray wolf. And the gray wolf is um, in the family Canidae of the order Carnivora. Carnivora means they are by nature carnivores. That everyone needs to stop and listen to. So, for instance, I am myself a vegetarian. Um, Mm -hmm. I just have worked with humane rescue organizations long enough. I've been on enough farms in Iowa. I have had enough um, issues that I have just, I have had enough chickens as patients, as bunnies as patients, that I cannot consume my patients. So I am a vegetarian, I, and I can survive healthfully on a vegetarian diet. What I will tell you is that the order carnivora do not survive healthfully on a vegetarian diet. So I think this is where you have to be able to set your personal viewpoints aside. And if you're interested in nourishing a pet with a vegetarian diet, you need to pick a vegetarian pet. Like if you're totally opposed to animals eating meat or the world eating meat, I would strongly recommend you don't buy a carnivore. I would recommend you get a herbivorous animal like a rabbit as a pet. makes fabulous pets. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. If you decide to pick a dog as a pet or a cat as a pet, they are coming out of the order carnivora, which means they are designed to eat meat. And there's, you don't have to argue that with Dr. Becker. You, that's just, you can argue that with the um, Society of Zoologic Nomenclature, which are this. <laughs> They are the people who. That's not Dr. This is not the world according to Dr. Becker, girl. This is the, the yeah. This is um. This is said and done way beyond me. So I, what I do do is use the the data in the literature to eat, to make really good objective decisions about how to nourish animals. So we know that dogs and cats coming out of order carnivora. Domestic kitties, Felis catus, are part of the genus Felis, which is a small group of kitties that has seven species. All are obligate carnivores. So dogs are scavenging carnivores. That means. They catch and kill small prey. They also, their nutritional standards are not as high as kitties. They'll eat some dead stuff. They'll forage. They'll eat a little bit of grass, a little bit of berry. But all in all, their diet is primarily, if they can catch and kill food, they will. If they need to eat food that has been, you know, roadkill or whatever, they'll do it because they don't have these amazing nutritional sta- uh, standards. Um, yeah, um, so, so all that to say, kitties have very high nutritional sta- uh, standards. They will not eat anything dead. They want food fresh, fresh. They want to kill it themselves most of the time if you let them. It's interesting. Yeah, some of the healthiest kitties in my practice are the barn cats. I have indoor outdoor yeah. kitties, a few of them. All of my 21 and older club at Natural Pet uh, are indoor outdoor kitties, which means they're allowed to hunt. They move their bodies. They're allowed to go outside. That is, of course, a risk, and we can, that, that's a whole other radio program. But mm-hmm. um, those kitties that make it to 21 have been able to hunt their, their evolutionary appropriate diet. They're designed to eat meat. So they hunt mice, and they're able to then um, thrive because they're consuming their natural diet. I'm not in any way suggesting that 
we allow animals that you buy mice to feed your kitties, but I will tell you that animals that are allowed to do that are, statistically speaking, much healthier than animals that are in a dead, inorganic, overprocessed dry food. Yeah. So that being said, kitties are obligate carnivores. Dogs can scavenge. They don't have, they have, you know, they lick their butts and eat poo, too. So there's a whole different, that's where the scavenging yeah. comes in. Mm-hmm. So um, the, both of those categories, dogs and cats, are evolutionarily designed to consume meat. So in the last hundred years since dogs and cat foods have come about, their GI tracts have not evolved. There's been no evolution in the last 100 years. So dogs and cats are still very well equipped to consume meat. So what I will tell you, the necessary components of a dog and cat food is quality protein, very high quality fat. Now when I say quality, I, in my opinion, uh, it needs to be human-grade meat. Mm-hmm. I do not believe that dogs and cats are deserving of the waste products or the runoff of the human food industry. So those, that's the fancy word for rendered. I'm not a big believer that you should ever feed anything rendered. Yeah. Here's the scoop. If you, uh, you'll know if you are feeding uh, USDA-inspected meat because it will say on it human grade. Mm-hmm. If it doesn't say human grade, it, it isn't. And um, I will promise you that even some of those quote-unquote super premium foods that you are feeding are not, they're still rendered, which means they're not approved for human consumption. Dogs and cats need high quality fats, and they do not need anything else. I mean, we can try and emulate or mimic the stomach contents found in small prey through a small amount of ground up veggies. But all in all, the, the carbohydrates, dogs and cats are not designed, nor do they have a nutritional requirement for carbs, meaning corn, wheat, rice, soy, um, Corn, uh, potato. They, dogs just dogs and cats don't have a biologic requirement for those. Okay. So then, going back to, well, what happens if you feed those? It's not that if you feed carbohydrates. So what I would tell all my patients and all 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 of our listeners to do is to flip over the bag of food, and number one, identify, read the label, and you better be able to pronounce everything on the label. When you get down to you know propylene glycol, or any other word that you wonder how to pronounce it or what it is, you probably shouldn't be feeding it. Well, especially what you just named was propylene glycol. Isn't that antifreeze? It's the second cousin uh, to antifreeze, which is ethylene glycol. Yeah. And it's still propylene glycol is still allowed in the human in the pet food industry, not allowed in human foods, but we, it is allowed in as a humectant or a, a, a semi-moist food ingredient. And it, in my opinion, should never be fed to dogs and cats. Yeah. So picking human-grade protein and excellent quality fats is a really important thing. It can be difficult, though, because if you're going to, if you purchase meat yourself, you know how expensive it is. Um, Mm -hmm. Making a dog or cat food that's human-grade is wildly expensive, and so you will pay probably double to triple if you're going to try and improve your pet's quality of nutrition. You're going to pay out the ear for it. Well, you know, when you're looking at the, the Supposedly, better quality uh, commercial foods, they're not inexpensive either. Uh, you know, for a 12-ounce can, we're talking two fifty, three fifty, sometimes 4 bucks or so a can. Yep, yep, that's Which exactly is a lot right. of, that's a lot. It's you know, a, it, it's a, it's a it lot. It adds up. So. You got it. You and got then it. you have to factor in the vet cost of a non-thriving, you know, animal right. um, and, and break down over their lifetime. So... Oh, it, it evens out. Okay, so high-quality human-grade meat, and you're saying high-quality fats. What do you mean by fats? So dogs and cats have a very high essential fatty acid requirement. They they need a tremendous 
amount of omega-3 fatty acids. So there are omega-6 fatty acids, which are pr primarily found in vegetables sources. Mm -hmm. There are omega-3 fatty acids, which are primarily found in marine sources. So when I say high-quality fats, there are fats that are included in the majority of store-grade, commercially available canned and dry foods, but those fats are oftentimes rendered, meaning they're leftover restaurant grease, uh, there's quote-unquote palatability enhancers that are sprayed on all commercial dry foods, the majority of commercial dry foods, that can contain not only uh, animal digest but a lot of rendered fat to increase palatability. And my concern, of course, in feeding those is over a lifetime that's not a good quality uh, or a bioavailable source of fat. But most importantly, companies have to put preservatives to stabilize those fats and prevent them from becoming rancid. Animals uh, mm -hmm. can become sick very quickly from eating a high-fat food that has gone rancid. They yeah. put a lot of chemical preservatives. And I have a, a very near, dear, close experience uh, to almost losing a dog because of ethoxyquin toxicosis. Ethoxyquin is a rubber stabilizer that Science Diet used to use in their foods um, that preserves antioxidants. And I was feeding free food for, uh, during vet school because I was a broke veterinary student and I was getting free food and I was feeding it to my Rottweiler and she uh, went into liver failure that was due to ethoxyquin. So I really believe that you need to feed a chemical preservative free food, but the only way you're going to do that is be able to uh, feel confident with the amount of fats in the whole foods that you're feeding in terms of of knowing the sources enough that they're not going to be adding those things in before they go on the label because a lot of these dog and cat food companies are purchasing ingredients that have chemicals included, but because they were added before they mixed the batters for these dry foods, they don't have to include them. So knowing uh, who the, what you're feeding in terms of the, the quality of the, the company that you choose to do business with is really, really important. Mm -hmm. A lot of people learn the hard way, not only through the recall, but in calling companies and saying, you know, are you are you using human-grade foods, um, they have found out the hard way. A lot of times people have been able to learn how to add up percentages on the back of their dry or canned food and recognize that, you know, this is 65% grain. When I add up the, even mm -hmm. though meat is first on the label, when I add up the second, third, fourth, fifth ingredient, it constitutes like 70% of the diet. So I'm paying a lot of money for a potato-based food, and, and I, I just don't want to do that anymore. So the yeah. more pet owners become educated about how they're nourishing the pet, the more they're going to be able to make really wise decisions to be able to make better choices for unlocking their, their pet's body's healing potential. But it comes down to education. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm. It's a lot of information. It can be kind of overwhelming. I certainly... Now, in addition to speaking quickly uh, at my practice and having to cover nutrition and, you know, having to cover people come in and say, you know... I've been feeding this food for 10 years, and, and my vet says it's fine. And so my statement will be, but, you know, your your dog has had allergies for 10 years. Yeah. So my clients will say, yeah, you know, but I'm not supposed to switch the food. And I'll say, why? And they'll say, well, because my vet said not to. Right. And so um, they told I, me something bad would happen if I yeah, did that. I have to in, do what my vet said. I'm afraid. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. So you have to be able to feel confident enough that you are going, that you're educated enough is to to ask those why questions. So the why is this. Mm -hmm. If you were to eat oatmeal three times a day for 10 years, um, and only oatmeal because it's, it lowers cholesterol and it's high in fiber, um, <laughs> and you never ate anything besides oatmeal for 10 years, mm. and then if you were to go out to Mexican 
you would have blowout explosive diarrhea. <laughs> not because the Mexican joint was trying to off you. He's the Mexican joint not trying to, to kill you. Your GI tract was not adapted to consume that food. And it's not that Mexican food's bad. It's that you had such a monotone, narrow-minded GI tract that your body wasn't resilient enough to handle that. And so that this is exactly what I tell my clients, is if you're feeding the same food every day, all day, for four or five years, do we need to take three to four months to gently, very gently, mm-hmm enhance the gut diversification in your pet to be able to handle new foods and make your GI tract more resilient, we do. We, we have to do that. We're not going to up and switch food tomorrow because your pet would have a quote-unquote bad reaction. Mm-hmm. But to think that you could ever derive all the nutrition that your pet ever needs from one dry, inorganic, really high, highly processed food for its whole life is crazy to me. And I would hope that the more people really stop and think about it in terms of common sense, there's no way that any one bag of food is going to provide everything that a pet needs. And that really is the foundation of what I want people to get out of this of this interview is that they've got to be able to stop and think, you know what, maybe I should feed my pet more than this dry food. Mm-hmm. So then that comes to the whole what about people food question. And um, people food, there again, people are uh, amazing omnivores. We can eat a lot of different foods. There are some foods that would be totally appropriate for dogs and cats, especially as as treats. I'm a big believer that you don't need to spend a tremendous amount of money on treats. You 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 can cook up a whole natural chicken breast and cube it into small pea-sized pieces, and that's a wonderful treat for your cat or dog. Mm-hmm. It doesn't contain any fillers. It's side-effect-free. You know exactly you can get it antibiotic hormone-free. That's a fabulous treat. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so just thinking about reducing some of the, your pet's chemical intake through the, through the treats that you're feeding is a really good place to start. Sometimes it's overwhelming when you start recognizing... You know, I didn't know that my pet needed all these, that my pet didn't need all these vaccines. And I didn't know that my pet didn't need chemicals put on them every month, year-round, until they die. And I didn't know that I couldn't derive whole food nutrition out of a single bag of food their whole life. It can be really overwhelming. Like, where do I start? So what I tell my clients is, you know, just, we all have to start somewhere, and our learning curve is different, and... I'm still learning and applying the things that I, you know, learn on a daily basis. And so if this is all brand new information to you, you have to just take a deep breath and commit to continue learning about some of these things that we've discussed. You know, you have to be able to um, go online and not have your head swirl. You have to be able to think about getting, you know, just as humans, sometimes we have a chiropractor, an internist, a GP, a gynecologist, and none of those doctors argue and fight. It's totally fine. To have a wellness veterinarian and a traditional veterinarian and an ER veterinarian, totally fine to add another veterinarian to your pet's health care team because the more opinions, the more wise opinions you have about any subject, I believe, the more empowered you're going to be to make really good decisions. Okay. So adding some different opinions to your health care team could, could be a great place to start as well. Okay. I like that. So that's easy enough to do, just to it continue, is continue learning. Yeah, Continue exactly. asking the questions yeah. and even learning which question to ask. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and when exactly. to ask it. You know, yeah. So, and yeah. so what you'll find is that you'll oftentimes um, have people that say, I just, I just feel overwhelmed and I didn't know what to do, so I did everything at once and my pet you know, had a pretty bad reaction. So that's what I want to help people avoid. Mm-hmm. Um, I want people to feel confident with each decision that they're making. I want people to feel um, uh, reassured that they've got people on their healthcare team that they can ask questions to. 
the, um, that they that they feel secure and recognizing. So, for instance, that you can titer. Titer is a vaccine measurement, and so mm-hmm. instead of automatically giving a parvo distemper adenovirus para influenza lepto corona. You could titer, you could do a blood draw. Some people say, ah, my local vet says that. I don't know if that's such a good idea. Learning and applying what you've learned so that you know in your heart you're making an okay decision, even if it goes against what your traditional vet is recommending, that's what empowerment's all about. But that only comes through educating yourself. Mm -hmm. True. Absolutely. Okay, so you have a cookbook. I do have a cookbook. Let's talk about that because I'm, I'm just thinking, you know, okay, here you are, here we are. I'm inspired. I mean, I, I cook for my dog, um, but I'm, I can just feel our audience going, ah, I'm inspired. I'm learning more. I'm educating myself. You know, this is such important information, but I don't know quite know what to do next. I get that I'm, I need to keep learning, but what, what's next? What do I do? How do I get started? Um, I, I Maybe I could cook something if it wasn't too involved, you know. Um, or it might not be too hard if I actually had the steps. Right. right? So, well, and it's and it's interesting. That's exactly why I I didn't set out in my veterinary career to write a pet cookbook. I just want you to know. <laughs> <laughs> you weren't an aspiring yeah, was, uh, no, you know, Rachel no, Ray for the no, pet, for the exa- for pets. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. I was not. I'm um, used to know that um, <laughs> this came about actually kind of out of necessity. And what I mean by that is I. I do do phone consults once a week with people that don't have access to an integrated veterinarian. So mm-hmm. I talk with people from all over the world, and what they say to me over and over and over is, you know what, I, I, under, I, I believe in whole food nutrition for myself. I live an organic, clean lifestyle for myself. I cannot find pet foods that meet my expectations, mm-hmm. and I want to cook for my pet. But I also know that throwing together some chicken and some veggies that I will make my pet malnourished, and I'm so – proud of my clients that recognize that. What I will tell you is this. If you if you are going to home prepare foods, because sadly pets live and die in, let's just say, 15 years, nutritional issues come about very quickly. So just a minor deficiency in, let's say, manganese over several years is enough to cause soft tissue, tendon, ligament problems for dogs that would predispose them to rupturing an ACL. Mm. So all that to say, I'm a, I'm a pretty neurotic vet about nutritional balance which means if you're going to home prepare foods, it's really critical that you know in your heart you're giving the right amount of calcium, magnesium, iodine, vitamin D. All those things are really important. So um, I had enough twofold reason why I created this cookbook with my pet health wellness coach, Beth Taylor. Um, We collaborated on this cookbook for this very reason. Number one, people were making homemade food incorrectly, and Mm -hmm. I am seeing, and I was seeing and still am seeing, Dogs and cats that have suffered, I have clients with amazing intentions, but they have fed an unbalanced diet long enough that their pets are suffering from diseases that they have unintentionally created. Mm. And that's heartbreaking, just heartbreaking. When you did, the whole reason you're cooking is to prevent disease, and inadvertently you have caused it. So that was a big reason why I created a balanced cookbook. But number two, people didn't have choices. So some people... All you listening in the middle of Wyoming, I hear you. And <laughs> people say, I don't, I don't have, I can't, do, I don't live in Chicago. I just can't zip down to my, to my upscale pet wellness boutique and pick out nine different varieties of great human grade raw food. I just don't have that. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I did create this cookbook for those people that are stuck having, having to make their own pet food. So my cookbook book has cooked varieties as well as raw varieties. Dogs and cats can consume raw foods. They don't have to have entirely processed cooked foods. They're fine eating raw. You don't have to feed raw, but it's one way to 
offer unadulterated proteins, amino acids, and foods that still contain living enzymes without having to dirty up another dish. So there are options for cooked and raw both. What I will tell you is you said easy and simple. That much I would argue with. I will tell you you that that nourishing your pet in a balanced fashion, the first couple times you do it is not easy or simple. It's overwhelming and exasperating only because if you've been throwing together some veggies and meats and assuming you're fine, when you read my book, you're going to say, oh, my goodness, I didn't realize that I, I really did need to supply that trace mineral, and I wasn't. Mm-hmm. Now, after you do it, after you make food one or two times, you'll be a pro veteran, veteran, you'll take a deep breath, and you'll be totally fine. But until you do that, um, it can be a little overwhelming. So when people first read my book, they say, oh, my goodness, it's not easy. Um, and believe it or not, after you do it a few times, it does become easier. But I am a stickler for balanced nutrition, meaning I believe that we have to meet minimum nutritional require, requirements set forth by AFCO and NRC, um, actually, in my book, we, we list those requirements up against the ancestral diet, which means we have looked at what animals need through ancestral nutritional studies, and that's really the basis for our nutritional requirements in the book. Mm, okay. So um, we actually are stacking three different profiles up against each other, and, and we are following really the role model of the ancestral diet, but that does mean that you have to make a custom-formulated vitamin mineral supplement. Okay. And then, of course, you blend with that some veggies and some meats, and, and, you, and you add some essential fatty acids, and you have a complete diet. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so, so that's an option. Um, if, you, if you are having problems, and this is what I tell my clients, if you have more money than time, mm-hmm. buy a commercially available human-grade raw diet. If you have more time than money, then do a homemade diet because you can still have, I mean, you have fabulous quality control. You're able to identify every single thing you're going to put in your pet's mouth, but it's substantially cheaper than the canned foods uh, or some of the commercially available raw foods that you would be purchasing. It's substantially cheaper. Okay, so I want to, let's hit that one more time. So if you've got more money and less time, there are commercially prepared foods that you can get that that are adequate, that, that are They're okay. Are. They're right. Right. Yep. right? Um, do you, can you name any names? I, I, I can't, only because, okay. um, you know, I'm kind of perimenopausal, and I for, if I, for, <laughs> I forget one or two, I forget one or two, <laughs> I get really bad phone calls. Oh, I hate that. I hate it when I know it. Okay. I know it. I know what's and wrong so, with people. Yes. If I, okay, I, should so. have, I should have wrote on a sticky note. So actually, there are a couple of dozen <laughs> really great um, quality human grade companies that are doing an excellent job. In fact, the majority, the majority of commercially available raw food diets are human grade. If you don't want to feed a raw food diet or if it makes you nervous, many of the raw food diets you can actually cook, and so they're totally safe to cook. Not all of them, but some of them you can cook. Mm-hmm. Um, we are absolutely having more and more options for canned and dry food diets. Now, here's the issue with dry food. I'll just touch on this real briefly. Okay. Dry foods are convenient. The whole reason that they came on the market is it's really easy to scoop out a, you know, a couple cups of kibble, dump it in the bowl, done. That's kind of mm-hmm. like going through the dollar drive through fast. Mm-hmm. Dry foods, this is what I tell all of my clients, the only reason I would ever advocate you feeding dry foods is if you could not afford to feed better quality food. Mm-hmm. Um, we cannot expect that, that especially kitties can, will never be nourished appropriately eating dry food. Three out of four cats will die of kidney failure 
statistically speaking. Mm. And if we're going to nourish those kidneys appropriately, nature dictates that they need a 70% moisture-based diet, and that will only happen if you feed them canned or raw. So feeding dry food, it's a big myth. People say, but what about the teeth? Um, I, I think it's darn milk bone convince people that if you, that just sadly, just urban legend says if you feed a crunchy food, it'll clean your pet's teeth. Mm-hmm. Listen, people, mm-hmm. you eating granola, not going to clean your teeth. Yeah, granola you, or crunchies. I always crunchies. tell people if you ate a diet of chips, you would not be cleaning Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And so some people say, oh, my gosh, I can't believe that. So you're not going to acquire exquisite dental health for your pets eating dry food. So that that that's probably the number one issue people say is what about their teeth. Uh, unfortunately, the moisture content in dry food, about 10%, leaves animals in a state of chronic dehydration, not to mention there has to be a search of starch added in for the for the kibble process to occur so Mm -hmm. whether that's potato Mm -hmm. or whether that's wheat corn rice rice soy uh, there has to be a source of starch which is not biologically appropriate so Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. if you are economically pinched and you can afford no better then obviously dry food is is what you will be feeding and then you can supplement with living foods to help Mm -hmm. meet your pet's Mm -hmm. antioxidant requirement and get some of those unadulterated whole foods in there but if you can do better, uh, then we would, of course, encourage you to do so. So one of one of the things I have done, Val, is I have made uh, I have made a gazillion videos, which I have on thehealthypets.mercola.com. I, we have a whole YouTube channel, and I have dozens and dozens of videos on how to how to go to a pet store and actually pick a better quality food. Ah, so cool. although I yeah I can't name names, what I, I've given you all the tools you need to be able to. In fact, it doesn't even matter about brand. What I want people to do is to, with the, with the bag or the can, with the label side, with the brand side down, I want people to be able to look at a label and say, yes, this is appropriate, or no, it's not. Mm-hmm. So I don't want any pet owners to be sold out to a brand or label. I want people okay. to be sold out to a premise of good health, foundationally healthy foods. You know, what I like about that, Karen, is that commercial foods – change hands, they change management, they change ingredients, they, they're changing all the time. So if we, we don't necessarily need to be brand loyal these days. We need to be educated so we know what we're looking for and we yep. can look at that label and say, yes, this works or no, this does not work. I wouldn't, fe- wouldn't touch that with a 10-foot pole. Yep. You know, unless and, I want to kill my really, animal. It's really important. I, I have a lot of people call and say, what's your favorite brand? And there's no such thing. There's no mm-hmm. such thing as any one brand. In fact, mm-hmm. when I'm going to feed commercial foods, I rotate between Every day, my pets get a different type of protein. Now, I'm neurotic. I'm not encouraging anyone to be as nutty as I am. But I feed <laughs> chicken, beef, turkey, venison, bison, rabbit, goat, fish, quail, ostrich, and then we'll start the cycle again. So I feed a lot of different protein sources because all of that nutritional diversity I want my pets to experience for a strong, resilient GI tract. And we know that 70% of their immune system is located in their gut, and I want a strong, resilient gut so they have a strong, resilient body. So that's how I feed in my house. I rotate foods every day, just like I eat something different every day. That's pretty... um, that's pretty aggressive, but I will tell you that I, I expect exceptional health because I don't perform veterinary care on my own pets. My pets mm-hmm. are just thriving, mm-hmm. and uh, they're, they're veterinary care-free, which is exactly, wow. how I, exactly how I'd like the whole world to be. But certainly seeing pets 10 hours a day, I don't go home and, and perform veterinary care on my own. So, mm-hmm. so I have organized my food structure at my house that particular way. What I tell a lot of my clients to do is you know, feed a brand for three to four months and then rotate, rotate out of that particular brand and also rotate the protein. So giving your pets access to a diversified number of proteins, 
we do know that, for instance, kitties tend to overeat seafood, poultry, seafood, poultry, seafood, poultry, and ironically, mm-hmm. many, many kitties develop allergies to seafood, poultry. Many, yeah. many kitties develop hyperthyroid, hy- hypothyroidism from consuming seafood that they were never meant to consume. Yeah. You know, our, the wild kitties in Africa, they did not hunt tuna on a daily basis, so... Um, their 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 evolutionary DNA is not to hunt and kill tuna. And now they like it. Some people say, but they like it, and we won't even go there because That's what our bodies eat. like and what we need are two different things. But mm, um, so recognize, yeah, yep. Mm-hmm. So just recognizing some of those basic premises that pets do need diversity, but they need diversity within what they would naturally be eating is an important, really important point. Yeah. Whew. Well said. All right. So I think that's yeah. pretty that's some pretty good basic information. Some great. It's yeah. great information. Okay, so what do you want our listeners to do next? So I know we've got um the healthypets.mercola.com. You've got videos there. There's great information. I will tell everyone I'm getting your e zines, your newsletters. They're wonderful. Your articles are great. I highly recommend people signing up for that. Um so exactly. So I have a free newsletter that goes out three times a week, you can sign up mm-hmm. at com, mm-hmm. And uh, those are just proactive health newsletters. I find I find articles and not always scientific journals, but I find articles and then I make an article out of that article, if that makes sense. I also okay. have a video up there, um, and I just select video topics. I'm open for people emailing video topics. I just select topics cool. that I think are relevant that people um, have an interest in knowing a little bit more of a proactive or holistic mm-hmm. kind okay. of twist to, to some of those topics. So. Cool. That that information can all be found on the Healthy Pets website. Mm-hmm. And then um, I think what's most important is that if people, if anything that we've touched on today, if people hear this information, they think, you know, I this resonates with me. I never thought about switching up my pet's diet, and I never thought about the fact that I shouldn't be sold out to a brand. I just don't know what to do. I do think, um, number one, sometimes people can start to panic. I will tell brand new clients that come to visit me that you know we all have to start somewhere don't beat yourself up if you've been feeding if now you recognize you've been feeding beef flavored rendered dry dog food for 10 years don't beat yourself up mm-hmm. but be thankful that you've had the opportunity to recognize that you could be doing something better and we yeah. all have had to start somewhere and so don't have remorse about where you are starting be kind to yourself but i have a a video on the on the website that's 13 best to worst foods and what I will tell you is find out rank your what you're currently feeding your pet and then make it your goal over the, over the course of the next 6 months to 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 go one up that particular level so let's let's say you're feeding a level 6 dog or cat food I would encourage you to try to feed a a, a number 5 dog or cat food which means feed one step better than than what you're currently feeding and that's a really good goal without okay. feeling overwhelmed you can just work up to potentially the very best food that you can afford to feed you need to continue asking all sorts of questions. You will have more questions than answers, certainly initially. If you're first into proactive or wellness living for your pets, you'll have a lot more questions. But finding great teachers um, is an important part of getting some of those answers, uh, those, some of those questions answered. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think most importantly, uh, it's important that pet parents recognize that they are in ultimately in charge of the animals in their care and that although we... We are thankful that we have veterinarians and other healthcare practitioners to assist in, get, in offering us their opinions. All in all, it is the job of the pet guardian to make sure that they are doing all they can to foster vibrant health. And that really is done through a series of really good lifestyle choices. 
and that although we're thankful that you have veterinarians to give you input, all in all, it's up to you, the pet guardian, to be able to make the very best decisions for the animals in your care. So evaluating the three pillars of health, evaluating food, evaluating what you're doing for the immune system, including the number of vaccines, pesticides you're putting on your pets, um, recognizing if your pet's slightly overweight or has a, a frame issue that you're addressing that. Those are all great places to start. But most importantly, all of these decisions are really up to you, the pet guardian, and not up to anyone else. So being able to take responsibility for the animals in your care is really the very first step. <sighs> well done. Yeah. Well, this has, been, um, this has been an excellent time of sharing, and I hope that... Yes. I hope that everyone has been able to take away a morsel or two of something that they haven't thought about before. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Um, I also I know we didn't throw in the name of your cookbook. I'm thinking people are probably wondering what that is. <laughs> it, it is Dr. Becker's Real Food for Healthy Dogs and Cats. It's available on the um, Healthy Pets website or through Amazon as well. Excellent. So we'll include that link um, with our posting also. So we've been speaking with Dr. Karen Becker of Mercola.com, healthypets.mercola.com. Thanks so much, Karen, for your time today, for sharing your heart with us, for your love of animals, and for helping to make our world a better place. Thanks, Mel. Thanks. Okay, bye, everybody. Thanks for listening to the show. For more information or to listen to other podcasts, go to valhart.com forward slash blog. And if you're someone who values a non-invasive, holistic solution to resolving problems with your dogs, cats, and horses, and you want better behaved, healthier, and happier animals, just go to my website at valhart.com to apply for a complimentary happy animal assessment session. And be sure and remember to look for my CDs on iTunes. Learning how to talk with animals is fun and will change your life. So while you're there at my site, get my free Quick Start Animal Talk course and check out the world's first complete animal communication made easy system. May the love of animals bless you, teach you, inspire you, heal you, and reconnect you to the circle of life. Mm -hmm.